All right, good morning. We'll get started. This is the class you've all been waiting for. David Bathsheba, the true story. This is like inside edition of the Bible. Uh, so, 2 Samuel 12 and 13. Uh, when you struck, remember, 2 Samuel was not written as 2 Samuel. It was all written as one long book. However, since we have the Bible divided up into books, the structure of 2 Samuel, the first 10 chapters is about David the triumphs. I mean, he has just, he has beaten everybody. He's expanding the borders. Uh, he's marrying too many wives, as we're going to find out this week. Uh, he is making Israel strong. And then, you know, as Randall covered, then you have the, the Davidic covenant, when, you know, God through Nathan tells David, through you the Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming. So David's on top of the world. This week we're talking about the trial of David. And then based on what happens at the trial, the rest of the book is the tribulations of David. Uh, he goes from the top of the world to the bottom really fast. And then works his way back up. Uh, and so it, what we're talking about this week obviously is the middle part, 11 and 12. While I was looking at this, I found these uh, maps to cut the, when, the, when you talk about this part of the book and then uh, the book of uh, Samuel and Kings, Jerusalem's the center. And then at the time of Jesus, Jerusalem's the center. This is what Jerusalem would have looked like in David's time. This is about eight acres. So according to the Adams, that's eight homes. <laughs> nice house. Eight nice houses. Eight, eight really nice houses. Uh, and so this is what, when David conquered Jerusalem, this is what he conquered. Uh, at this point, David builds his palace, which uh, there's some archaeological evidence that we kind of know where this is. Uh, and then Mount Moriah here would have been leveled off a little bit, and that's where the tabernacle would have been sitting. Because remember, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so it would have been set up here in the tent. And as you remember, you know, David asked the Lord uh, through Nathan, he goes, hey, I'm living in a really nice house. Why you know, can't I build the Lord's house? And He's told no, and that's where the Davidic covenant comes from. So this is what we're looking at this week. Uh, these houses here would have been reserved for, for the leaders of his army and his government, which co comes into big play this week when we talk about David and Bathsheba. Uh, and just to give you some reference, this is Jerusalem under Solomon. So you see Solomon develops the temple. Uh, this is David's house. This is Solomon's house. Solomon upgrades. David has a really nice house, like Steve said. Solomon's got a really, really nice house. This is like gated community here. You can't get in after here. But uh, so you see Jerusalem growing on top of it, this hill, Mount Moriah. 
and then this was probably about <coughs> what, what, they, what do they say like about two acres three acres before Herod the Great first acres. so three acres just keep that in mind three acres uh, and then this is Nehemiah so post uh, the Babylon captivity same basic city here but you see what happened they just the Babylonians basically destroyed the city so they had to rebuild it so David's house is gone Solomon's house is gone this temple is much much smaller than Solomon's temple and then the last this is the time of Jesus <coughs> this is David's Solomon city here so you see this this is the same scale so this is what almost eight acres 13 now so uh, Herod the Great came in and just leveled the top of the mountain filled in the valleys and created a large area so this temple is much larger than that Solomon's temple but that gives you the areas that we're talking about this is where so David would have lived basically right here <coughs> And then modern Jerusalem, I won't fit on my thing. It's much larger. But that gives you an idea of how Jerusalem would play such a central role in everything from here on out, how it kind of grew. But just remember, so when we read the story today, David's living here. And when he's walking around looking down, he's, he, he's literally looking down on all the other things. His house is highest. Because as you look at older civilizations, actually modern civilizations, the rich live up high, the poor live down low. Uh, when I was in Haiti, a Port-au-Prince, same thing. People with money all live on top of the hill. Because civil engineering is water runs downhill and other things run downhill. And so you want to be at the top of the hill, not the bottom of the hill. So remember this so when we, we read it, this is where David's at, and here's the other, these would be his, the equivalent of our like generals and colonels in his army would have started living here. And as you go down, social economics would drop. Although it's not a big drop, it's not a big city. What? The pool, uh, later, later in the year, you see the water down to the bottom, far bottom of the hill. You talking about this? No, Shalom. Go back one. Uh, one more. There. Is it like this pool? Is that the one that the tunnel underneath? Okay, you see, you see the projecting tower up there? The projecting tower. Not that tower. What's the other one right there? That's the about this tower? Yes. That tower. That's the tower for the Gihon Spring. That's so that gave perpetual water into Jerusalem. Hezekiah built a tunnel from there to the pool of Shalom. Down at the bottom. Yes. 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 Right. And remember, if you go to Israel, this has been destroyed 15 times, give or take a little bit. Everybody, everyone attacks the city and then they all destroy it and they rebuild it in their own way. The Romans at the time of Jesus destroyed Jerusalem twice and rebuilt it twice. Well three times if you count uh, Herod the, the Great. Water is real. 
Yes, water doesn't move. So if you hit water, you're there. Yeah. So where the springs are are where the springs are. So that's where you can kind of ro locate things based on where they are according to the water. All right. So let's talk. It's spring when the kings go off to war. Uh, remember the last two chapters, David's been cleaning up everybody. He's beat the Ammonite. Saying that right, Canaanites, too many syllables, and so he's—they're down to the, just their capital, which is Ramah, and so he sends Joab out to besiege the capital, which uh, is Amon Jordan, which, which is now Amon Jordan. Yeah, so it's across the Jordan River, uh, across from uh, Jer little ways from Jericho. Uh, Talk about David is probably in his low 40s because we know he was in Hebron for, he was king when he was 30. He was in Hebron for seven years. Jerusalem has he's managed to beat all these other people, build his house. So we're thinking that he's probably in his low 40s for this. Uh, and so he sends Joab out to do it. A siege takes a long time. So this is not, we're going out for a battle. This is, we're going to encircle the city. We're going to build all our works. We're going to starve them out. This is going to take a while. That's why most historians think he sent Joab out without David going. So now David's back in Jerusalem. Uh, one evening, you know, took a siesta, which is mixing uh, cultures, but you know what I mean. Walked around the roof of his palace. David's on top of the city. He's walking around, and this is towards the evening. It's still daylight. Uh, he sees a woman bathing. She was very beautiful. He sent someone out to find out about her. The answer that comes back is the, his messenger trying to tell David to stay away. She is Bathsheba. She is the daughter of Elam. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Culturally, the most important thing comes first. So what's, her, what's the most important thing? She's the daughter of Elam. Uh, Elam is one of his men of valor. He'd be like the equivalent of a colonel or general of David's army. Uh, Uriah the Hittite's another one of his men of honor, men of valor, but he's younger. Uh, and so what this guy is telling him is, hey, it's a daughter of, a good, of one of your advisors, and she's married. So there, there are two red flags in this statement that is here. And then David goes, and David sends messengers to get her. He just blows through that, stops them. When God sends you big stop signs, stop, 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 David just blows through them right here. Uh, and she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. This is important because... That means that she cannot be pregnant before she comes and sees David. It would have been super helpful for David had she already been pregnant when she came, because then it's Uriah's baby. But she's not. And so this is this little side note is telling you she's not pregnant when she comes to see David. Uh, and then she went back home, she conceived and sent word to David, I am pregnant. Uh, so that's weeks later too, right? Well yeah, because yeah, they don't have the rapid test yeah. like, like we do. She didn't go down to Walgreens and go, oh, 
I'm, I'm 16 minutes late for my period. Let me, let me do a pregnancy test. So this is weeks, uh, probably three months. Uh, and so this also may not be once. We're not dealing with fruit flies. Uh, those of you ever at that biology lab, fruit flies, they breed real, you put them in together and there's like a thousand of them. Uh, so this probably is occurring more than once. Uh, and then, then the question a lot of people talk about is, this David's fault, this is Bathsheba's fault, or is it both of theirs fault? Uh, you know, because you have to, all schools, you have the Bathsheba as a little innocent girl that, oh, the king sent for me. I'm going to go up to the king's house. And then you have the school of thought that David is this old powerful patriarch and he's just grabbing people. Bathsheba, by what we have, did not put up much of a fight. In, in, a, in the Middle East, the Jewish culture, this should have been a big red nut. She should have said, no, I'm married. Well, again, Elam, he, he has known Bathsheba since she was born. Elam is one of his advisors that's been with him for years and years and years. Bathsheba probably, because we don't see any other children involved, is probably in her upper teens or mid-teens to upper teens. David is the king. Uh, and you'll, you'll see writings about, well, she shouldn't have been on the, on the roof bathing at evening. Maybe. I mean, that, that's where you cleaned up. It's not like they had indoor plumbing. So you had to haul water around where you're going to do it. And there's probably only one house. Right. And the, and the other issue is everybody knows who's, who's the big house is, right? If you're in Jerusalem, who lives in the big house? The king. So there, there are some hints that she may not have been completely innocent. I'm not saying, not saying that she was uh, crawling her way up, but you'll see there's some signs here that she is not 100%. I'm just, you know, teeny, teeny bopper to run to the king's house. And, Oops, I get pregnant. There may be a little of both here. But if Uriah is one of his men of valor, Elon's one of his men, David knows who this person is. And Jerusalem's a very small city. It's not like you go, oh, there's a really good-looking girl. What's her name? He's known her for a while. So understand that's kind of laid in here. This is not uh, a, a stranger showing up in Jerusalem. She has been with, Elam has been with David for years. All right, and then he, then he sends words to Joab. Well, while you're going through this story, count how many of the Ten Commandments David breaks. Uh, there's a bunch. Uh, send me Uriah the Hittite, and so Joab sent him to him, and so he asked him, How, "How's the you know how's the siege going? How's the battle going?" And Uriah gives him a, uh, a report, and then he tells him, uh, "Go to your house and wash your feet." Most people think it's a euphemism for just go home and do whatever. Uh, Uriah, who's a Hittite, a Hittite are non-Jews. The Hittites come from north of Israel. He is, a, he is a guy who is basically a mercenary who's been with David also for years. Uriah is a better Jew 
that David is. Because the uh, when you're fighting the Lord's fights, if you look in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're not supposed to go home. When you fight, you fight. You're not supposed to sleep with your wife. You're not supposed to steal stuff. There's a whole list of things you're not supposed to do. Uriah knows that, so Uriah acts that way. He says, I'm going to sleep in the king's house. And then he asks him, so why didn't you go home? He says, well, if the ark, Israel, and Judah are standing in tents, and my commander Job and my men are in tents, how can I go to my house? And so this is very much in line with the Levitical law. As, and so he says, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And so then David uh, has to go to plan B. Before we go to plan B, let's talk about Bathsheba a little bit. Uh, she's the daughter of Elam. Uh, Eliam, if you look at 2 Samuel, is the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So you go, who is a... When the Bible puts names on people, you have to look and say, why are they naming these people? Ahithophel is David's counselor. He is the equivalent of his secretary of war. So not only is David sleeping with one of his men's wives, who is the daughter of one of his advisors, it's the granddaughter of his, one of his chief advisors. Again, that's why David probably knew who she was. It's not like she's a, she's a stranger to him. And uh, Ahithophel, now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like one who inquires of God. That is how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. So, a very wise, well-regarded counselor. And then, and then finally, she's also the wife. So she is totally entrained in David's circle. Uh, granddaughter of his advisor, daughter of one of his leading soldiers, wife of one of his leading soldiers. Uh, in leadership school, they would teach you not to do this. Don't sleep with all your people. Everyone is red because no good things come out. All right, when David said to him, oh, I'd stay here one more day, and then I'll send you back. And he says, hey, come, come, come and eat with me and drink with me. And David intentionally makes him drunk. If, he go, if he's drunk, he'll go home. If you go home, things happen, then I'm off the hook. Uh, but then in the evening, Uriah went out and slept on his mat. He did not go home. So no matter what David does, Uriah does the right thing. and doesn't go home. Uh, and then in the morning wrote a letter and said, sent it with Uriah, says, Wherever put Uriah where the feet fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw so he gets killed. Because remember, in these days when you fought, you fought one on one. And so if you fight one on one, all of a sudden everyone else pulls back, it's now 12 on one, and the one loses. So, story, he, he basically puts Uriah where they're at, Uriah dies. And since Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and then you never wanted to be the uh, messenger in the old days. You don't want to be in the new, current days either. 
you bring bad news to the boss, right? Especially the kings. They, they were as likely as not as to kill the messenger. You know, we have, a, we have a saying, don't shoot the messenger. In these days, they really they didn't shoot him, but they would, they would not unlikely kill the messenger if bad things came. And so Joab sends him back and says, here's what happened. Uh, you know, we, we haven't quite taken the city yet, so-and-so. We, we had some casualties. And then when David says, why would you get so close up to the wall, say, oh, moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. Code word that, you know, I've done what you've asked. Throughout the book of Samuel, Joab is always David's hatchet man. When something bad needs to be done, Joab does it. Sometimes Joab does it without asking David, like uh, killing Abner. But uh, other, and then we'll see more later on in the book. But Joab is the guy that, Joab's very straightforward. He gets rid of problems. He doesn't think about it, but he does get rid of problems. And then the messenger set out, he came, and then told him the story. And then David told the messenger, says to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Uh, press the attack and destroy it. Encourage Joab. So I mean, David's just flat out lying. He, he sends the message to Joab, make sure Joab, make sure Uriah is dead. And so, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's no big deal. Uh, then when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, this is the author reminding you that Bathsheba is married. He doesn't say Bathsheba, it's Uriah's wife. She mourned for him. Typically, this would be about seven days. A mourning for a husband in seven days. And when the time of mourning is over, she moved into the house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. The thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. That's a huge statement, because David is a man after the Lord's own heart. So for the author, who's probably Nathan, to write that now is a huge red flag. Everyone would see that. And this is where some people say Bathsheba may have wanted to be, you know, I don't want to be a queen, I want to be the queen. She may wanted to upgrade her uh, house some and move up, because she moves in very quickly. Uh, All right, now we're introduced to a guy named Nathan, who we've, we've, in, we've met before. Uh, again, you don't want to be the guy that comes to give the king bad news. Uh, we see a lot of the prophets, when God sends them to do stuff, says, wait a minute, are you sure there's not someone else who can go? Uh, you know, Jonah's the most famous, famous example. Oh, yeah, go tell the, the Assyrians. Oh, well, I'm going to go the opposite direction. Uh, so... Even the prophets were not, they were frequently scared when they had to do this. So Nathan has to go to David. And he tells him this very famous story that we've all heard growing up. Uh, there were two men who came to town, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, and the poor man had nothing except one little lamb. And then he makes it worse, that he bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children and shared his food and drank from his cup and slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It was a pet. And so a traveler comes, and the rich man doesn't take his stuff. He goes over and takes the pet from the poor man, prepared it for when it came. And David, you need to, you need to read this with yelling. 
Because at this point, David jumps up and screams out, as surely as the Lord lives, the, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that land four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So he's screaming. He's, he's irate. And then Nathan looked at David and says, you are the man. You know that had to just go through. Because Nathan and David have been together a long time at this point. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you over Israel. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Basically saying, you are the Lord's man. I control everything. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil? And he just tells him, you, you, David, killed hit Uriah with the sword and took his wife. Therefore, the sword will never depart your house. And the rest of this book is that coming true. And the rest of Kings is that coming true. And then he says, out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity to you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give it to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So he's telling him what's going to come. Uh, and then Nathan says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Adultery, stoning. Murder, stoning. Uh, I mean, you, you just pick off all the things he did. They're all death sentences. You are not going to die. But by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son who is born to you will die instead. So you know at this point, David is dying. He's going like, I would much rather die than my child die. And then says, it's not going to happen. You're going to live. Your son's going to die. Uh, and then if you flip over to Psalm 51, most of the Psalms we're not sure exactly when they're written. This one's, Psalm 51 has a type stamp in it. It's this time, he writes it right now. Did you notice what they read? You saw this morning with David Chase. No, that was all They were going to second service. Oh, no, you, you really think the Holy Spirit has anything to do with it? Yeah, I don't know. So, Psalm 51. Someone got Psalms for 51. I want to read it out loud. Anybody, anybody? What? Create in me a clean heart, oh God. What? Create in me a clean Wisdom and 
That's a broken man writing this. That you can just see, and especially when you know the story, he was on top of the world. This occurs, this occurs, then he writes that. And you just see him. And that and that's why so many authors say David is a man after God's own heart. He he sins, but he, he knows how to repent. And you know, he's gone from I'm you know, I'm king of the world, literally king of the world, to you know, I should be I should be dead. I have committed stuff that should be the death penalty. I have a question. Yes. Didn't we just study about how he wasn't a good father because he didn't kill his son when his son did things against the king? And yet this is God doing the exact same thing. And we consider that Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean his, weren't his son Well we're gonna get we're gonna get to a sense. Joab, Joab kills Abner in cold blood. And so he should have punished Joab and does not. Uh, and we're going to see the same thing come back and bite him in the, in the nether regions here in a minute. And well, he, he arranges all of that, like the yes. Godfather when he's dying. Oh, yeah. There, there, there's a lot. These guys. Yes. I can do it, but you can't. Right. And yeah, we'll see. We'll see. He, well, get, he didn't he, forget about it. He does not, David does not forget about it. He, do, he does take care of them, but. He doesn't do it till he's about to die. Yeah. So I'm in, but it's, yeah. But God, God grants God, grace yeah. to David in his very, he didn't, God didn't follow his own law, right? You just said it. He did murder, he did adultery. He should have been killed. But God, God didn't do it. God's taken away the sin. But God does not take away the consequences of that sin. Right, but the then when David doesn't treat his son, you know, oh, I can't kill my son. Well, well, David doesn't punish. Well, we're going to get to that. David doesn't even punish his kids, or he punishes them in the very uh, the lightest possible way. But that's the problem. When you're the leader, you got to lead. And so, if you're asking people to be godly and your family does stuff, people are looking at you, going like, "All right, what'd you do?" And he wanted to kill the guy who stole the sheep. Though. Oh yeah, he was like, David was like, "Yeah, bring him in here. I'll cut his head off myself, right here in the palace." No grace, and then and, and, and Nathan kind of looks at him and goes, "You're it." It is gray. Every, I mean, there, there. The, the whole thing is gray area, and that's why we have, we know what's right. 
we know what the Levitical law says, we should right. die. But we are, off, you know, while that, that phrase keeps on coming, that falling phrase, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Right. When we were in the uppermost of our sin. And the other thing, we talked about grace last week. Steadfast love in the beginning of that Psalm 51. That's Hesed. That's Hesed. That's grace. Grace is all that. And I, I mean, that's. I mean, that's not the whole. And, you know, Paul, we get in the New Testament. Paul says the entire reason, all the Old Testament did is pointed you to death. Because it showed you where you could not live with God because you constantly sinned. And that's why there had to be grace. Alright, another side thing. Who is Nathan? Uh, he's he is the uh, Leonardo of his days. He's a prophet, a priest, a temple builder, an advisor, and a writer. He's one of those guys that uh, he is we know he's a prophet because in chapter seven he gives the Davidic covenant. God speaks through him. In chapter twelve, God speaks to him again to David. Uh, he's a priest. Because we know that, I'm just going to ruin the story, but uh, he's the one who anoints Solomon to be king, which is a priestly role. Uh, if the Jewish writers uh, say Nathan studied under Samuel. I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that, that's throughout a lot of the Jewish writings, that, So, which would lean Nathan to be a priest out of, out of Levi. Uh, he's a temple builder because when you look uh, who does uh, in Chronicles and also a little early in Samuel when uh, David is negotiating with Hiram who's he send to get the logs and stuff? He sends Nathan. Uh, and then we know that under Solomon, Nathan was one of the coordinators of the building of the temple itself, not just David's home. Uh, he's an advisor to both David and Solomon. He writes a book uh, in uh, Chronicles, it actually talks about the book of Nathan. So we're not sure whether that we've lost that book or that book in the captivity was used to write the books that we now call Samuel and Kings. But they, they mention that there is a book of Nathan the prophet. Uh, and it also mentions that Nathan is the guy that's writing down a lot of the history of David and Solomon that's written by Nathan. So he's a, he's a Renaissance man 2,000 years before the Renaissance. Uh, so th this is Nathan. So when Nathan comes up, Nathan's not just a one-off prophet. He is a, a very wise man that is very influential during the reigns of David and Solomon. So does David name one of his sons after this Nathan? There you go, right there. Uh, children of Bathsheba. Interestingly enough, uh, in this book, uh, on the seventh day of the day, the child dies. Exactly what Nathan says. Uh, they were, David the tenants were afraid to tell him because he was uh, so distraught while the baby was alive. And in those days when someone died, you would you wouldn't wash, you would rip your clothes, you would grieve. And uh, how can we tell the child's dead? He may do something desperate. They're worried he'd kill himself. 
because his child is dead. Uh, and said, is the child dead? Yes, he got up, he washed, and he got dressed. Totally opposite what you expect. And they ask him, why are you acting this way? He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let this child live. But now he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Early resurrection theology in the Old Testament. That David recognizes there's a life after death. Because my child is with God, and I will go to him at some point. Uh, and then he comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went to her and made love, and they gave birth and named him Solomon. Old the Old Testament's not always linear. Uh, this is a true statement. This is not necessarily the birth order that it's in. Uh, and if I love this statement, the Lord loved him. He means Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name Jedediah. Jedediah means uh, blessed of the Lord or loved of the Lord. So Solomon means uh, either blessed or uh, next. Depends on where you put uh, a little marker in the Hebrew. So what I understand is, so why from that point on do they refer to him as Solomon? I don't God know. I don't. Usually, when God comes and gives you a new name, you switch your name. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, we know him as Solomon. God called him Jedediah. I mean, it, that's a pretty big deal when God sends a prophet to you, say, "Change your son's name." I'm calling him Jedediah. So when you get to heaven, Solomon's name tags are going to say Jedediah. <laughs> All right, so back, uh, Bathsheba had said, that's the last of the children that are named in Kings or Samuel. But we go to Chronicles, which, which looks at the same era, but written after the Babylonian captivity. She actually has five sons. They don't, they don't record daughters, they only record sons. Uh, first is the infant, infant that we don't know the name of. Then, Twice in Chronicles they list the they list the children, and typically you would list them most important. You'd either list them in order of birth or most important. They don't ever put Solomon first. He is he is probably the fifth child according to the Jewish writers. They'll say he's the fifth child. The unnamed one. These guys, Nathan, who was named of course after Nathan the prophet. The interesting part is, and then, that, then comes Solomon, otherwise known as Jedediah. If you look at Matthew and Luke genealogies, Matthew takes the genealogy of Joseph. He comes from Solomon. Luke takes the genealogy, we think, of Mary. Mary comes from Nathan. So Jesus' parentage on earth is double David. He comes from two different branches of David's line that meet together. But that would make Mary and Joseph cousins. Like really, 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 really distant cousins, but yeah. They're almost, they're almost I'd say given that's like uh, a thousand years, they're about as cousin as we are. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, because technically we're all from Adam, so we're all technically cousins here. But it depends on how close. 
so these are the children. So when you Bathsheba, so when you look at, think of Bathsheba, she does, she is the, directly in the line of Jesus, because two of her children are in the line of Jesus. So that one through Mary, one through Joseph. So does God redeem this action? Absolutely. Uh, he takes a literally a, a mess that we would we would be on uh, <clears throat> what's the network has all the murder shows on it Dateline Dateline this would be a Dateline show for sure yeah. the king sees a good looking girl he, man, he, you know, he arranges for an accident to occur to her husband pay somebody to kill him pay somebody to kill him next thing you know but all of David's sons from the other wives that he had like 25 at this point in time they would be crowned princes. Oh, they'd all be. That's when you look at this. Solomon is. Well, we know he had six in uh, Hebron, and so he's at least he's at least eleventh to the throne. Admit that's the highest he is. He's probably below that because I think he has seventeen in Chronicles. We're not sure whether so he's somewhere between eleventh and seventeenth in line to the throne. So when we get to the end of this book. You'll see why elevating Solomon to the kingship is such a big deal. But yeah, so here, so Bathsheba, and she probably has some daughters too. They just don't, they don't ever name the daughters, with one exception who we'll get to next week. All right, and I think that's it. Yes? David, who is one of the most godly men ever, you see where he goes when he's given success. And it's the same thing. What do you do with someone who's not that godly? Where do they go? And you're right. I mean, it's you, you, history is this constant cycle of, uh, you know, bad things happen. Everybody turns to God. We get better. And then a generation or two, they forget. And then it's all about us. You know, you know we, we did this on our own. And then bad things happen. You cycle down. It's this constant cycle through nature. And, and God, he gives us Jesus because we need that 
is the, the perfect example. And we're supposed to strive to be like him. Uh, we can't. We fail, which is what this shows. The guy who's most like God, who's after his God's own heart, fails. I mean, God redeems him, and he redeems his action. I mean, think about it. He took the action of the wife that he killed the husband and had the adulterous affair with, and that's who Jesus comes through. So he redeems this action that was should have been a death sentence for both of them involved. So, uh, yeah, so God can redeem anything. Sometimes we don't think that, and we, we worry about it, but God can redeem anything. He's all-powerful. All right, so next week, the bad things that happen because... It gets worse. It gets worse. It goes downhill, yes. We've hit the peak of the book of 2 Samuel. It goes downhill from here.